hello, my name's Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with... Hello, hello, it's Will Sloan over here. <laughs> Whoa, Will Sloan or Clive Owen, I can't tell the difference. <laughs> you may be wondering why I'm talking in this Cockney accent, mate. <laughs> And today, we're going to be talking about Mike Lee, a contest-winning decision by our loyal listener, Angie. Thank you. Who won our Advertise Us for Free contest. Yes. I, I will say that, uh, Angie, if you're listening, I was not thrilled by this choice, but uh, now that we've done it, I'm glad we did it. Mike Lee's not a filmmaker that you've pursued or showed interest in, as in like, oh, a new Mike Lee film's coming out, I should see it. Well, as I realized when we were preparing for this, I probably have seen his last, like, five movies just as they came out because uh, they already have that kind of critical weight that yeah. is like you have to see it yeah and you know he's a man who makes uh quality quote-unquote films but he's not somebody who i ever showed that much curiosity and interest in which is not a knock on him i think it's just that you know my taste and probably yours as well veers towards kind of like uh you know arty art art stuff and kind of like schlocky lowbrow <laughs> garbage and not so much the middle brow stuff yeah i'm not gonna lie that I had never seen a Mike Lee film before sitting down and watching them for this podcast. Wow. And I think one of the reasons is that the genre that he falls into, like the kitchen sink drama, Mm -hmm. is one that I you know, yeah, pull back from I, automatically. That British kitch, kitchen sink school, yeah, I, I have, I have a innate aversion to it, which has entirely to do with me and not to do with the genre. That kind of like a British working class milieu where people are really angry and yelling at each other. I don't know. I, I can't, I don't connect to it instinctively. I have to make myself watch it. Yeah, because you feel like it's going to be work. Yeah, and I hate hearing myself say that. (laughs) But, you know, it's the truth that you have to look at yourself in the mirror, just like a Mike Lee film, and look sad. Who am I? I am an upper middle class Mm -hmm. boy in Canada. I don't, I didn't grow up in the tenements of North London. Uh, You know, I never, my parents never worked at the factory. (laughs) So you're like, look away from the poor people, Will. I'm a child of privilege. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. And so I watched a bunch of his movies for this podcast, and I should have said at the beginning that I had seen part of one of his films because I had gotten Topsy Turvy (laughs) on VHS, expecting it to be a musical of some kind. That was, I think, the first one I saw, and I saw it uh, because it was R-rated, and I was told (laughs) on the back of the Rogers video box that it had graphic nudity. (laughs) So you were looking forward to that. And let me tell I was- And you were like, and I'm a Gilbert and Sullivan fan. I think I was 13 at the time, Uh, and also just the fact that like my local Rogers video had a- so there was that, there was the hoping to see nudity, and then there was also the fact that my local Rogers had a uh, deficit of, like, decent movies, so... (laughs) Wait, how big was your local Rogers? Like, small? Not that big. It's (laughs) it's just, like, after you've been through it a couple of times, you see everything that's good. (laughs) You listen, they have 100 copies of Ace Ventura When Nature Calls. (laughs) (laughs) So I will tell you that I was disappointed by the film's nudity. Did you watch all of it? Because I made it maybe 30 minutes in before I I went, nope, I'm done. You didn't like it? Yeah. Uh, When I was a kid, I didn't like it, and I watched it now, and I still didn't really like it. I found it when I was like 13 and I haven't seen it since, but I found it surprisingly entertaining. I very much liked kind of the uh, warts and all look at the making of a musical. I liked the dynamic between Gilbert and Sullivan. One of them's this radical party dude. And the other one is this kind of <laughs> sunglasses, backwards, baseball cap. Yeah. And, and he's the, like, what's up? And the other one's this kind of like uh, upper class reserved, you know, stiff upper lip. I think that watching, I don't like Gilbert and Sullivan though. No, I mean, come on. It's, what are we a hundred years old? I mean, like... it's, it's lame, you know, <laughs> yeah. like three little mates from school. It's so like fucking precious. And, you know, <laughs> this film 
right off the bat, hit a bunch of boxes that I don't really like, which is that it was two and a half hours long. Yes. It, it featured um, not much of a dramatic story, more of a representation of what happened. Okay. And it took place in an upper class British milieu, which I do not like. Okay. I instinctively kind of react what to was rich that, people. A, a milieu? <laughs> milieu? Milieu. I don't want to sound, make myself sound like I was too rich at the, at the start of this. <laughs> I mean, as you know, I'm a I'm a two-fisted man of the streets. And I uh, grew up, uh, I would probably say You've, upper middle class. Yeah, in a poor, I, small I, I grew town. up upper middle class. I think and it's yeah. this film feels like it was made for that kind of people who would go to the cinema like an art cinema and this is the kind of movie that they would watch I, th- I think the stock that Gilbert and Sullivan hold over the upper classes is very revealing because they make this kind of they made this sort of like lame cheesy garbage mm-hmm. um, which I guess gives the appearance of being high class entertainment even though it's the most like the lamest community theater <laughs> shit and so the upper class the nouveau riche who have no conception of art look at it and think oh this is art I will never forget <laughs> one of my most vivid memories of Gilbert and Sullivan was do you remember that show that Aaron Sorkin wrote um, the newsroom no about oh I know what you're talking about <laughs> Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip I think it's in the pilot <laughs> yes. and and like they have to like figure out how to do this bit and they can't like quite lock on to what it is the very model of a modern network tv show yes so um (laughs) the idea that the main character has is to craft it as a gilbert and sullivan homage classic and, and it's just terrible yeah but back to mike lee I did watch his earlier pictures, like Life is Sweet. and what, what, How are his earlier pictures different than what he grew into? Well, his earlier ones are um, very contained in the way that they tell his, uh, their story. Like Life, Life is Sweet is about one family and kind of all of the emotions that are running across them. Mm-hmm. While something else like uh, Mr. Turner is in that topsy-turvy mode where it's just telling one story over a large canvas. Uh, people probably uh, associate Mike Lee most with the working class stuff. But there is quite a bit of variation in his filmography, isn't mm-hmm. there? I mean, there are these historical, I guess, drama would be the right word. And then there's a movie like Happy Go Lucky, which is like a real kind of like upbeat character study. We should talk about that something that attracts people to Mike Lee a lot is the idea of how he crafts his films. Uh-huh. So he's very famous for um, saying stuff like, you know, we don't start with the script. We start with an idea cast the actors, and then they craft their characters and storyline into what ends up being the finished film. I love the sound of that. I have to say that I don't, it doesn't come across to me when I watch them. I mean, it comes across in like a Christopher Guest movie or something like that. Mm -hmm. But in this, any of these movies look like they could have been rigorously scripted to me. Well, supposedly after all of that is crafted, a script is built up and they do stick to the words on the page. Does it come across to you at all? No, it does not. Okay. I, I mean... This week I watched uh, two of his most famous movies, Secrets and Lies and Naked. And of the two of them, Naked was the one that felt more like it could have come across from that process just because the storytelling is very messy. It's very... And it's very kind of like character focused about these actors that are doing very big things and they're the center of attention. And it has a couple of scenes, like the famous scene where David Thewlis talks to the Night Watchman, where I watched it and I was like, yeah, this could have been workshopped, the two of them together over over a week. Well, supposedly there 
there was like 50 plus takes that were done of that. Like there's like one famous shot where they're both um, silhouetted in a building and like David Thewlis is kind of like ranting about stuff. Yeah. And that was one they did over and over and over again until they got it quite right. So I watched Naked for the first time this week and David Thewlis is a weird actor that he obviously had a kind of theatrical background back in the day. These big theatrical performances. And I would say that watching something like Naked, he is doing that exact same stuff. I think he's amazing in it. He has that kind of like Richard E. Grant quality to him. Uh, I'd never seen Naked before. Uh, You had neither, probably for the same Mm -hmm. reason which is that it looks like uh, a very hard set. Especially from the first shot where you see him uh, seemingly sexually assaulting a woman in an alleyway. Yeah, and I mean, it is is a hard set and it's over two hours long. I'm glad I saw it. Um, I don't want to sound like the guy in line at the movie (laughs) at, at Annie Hall when I say that I found it difficult to connect to because these characters are, I mean, most of them are are either just awful or they're, like incredibly pathetic Mm. um having said that they are so specific and they are so themselves uh, and they're so well played that it's interesting to watch them even if it's like a virtuoso feat of like acting right just to watch them on screen even if it keeps me on the outside i'm a little curious how i remember this movie because most of the movies we talk about in this podcast i've often had time to live with for Mm. a while and i haven't for this one but david thewlis plays a i I mean, I hesitate to say working class guy, but he's somebody just a just a London Cockney guy who we don't quite know why, but his life is just utterly in shambles, just a, a walking train wreck. And the only way that he can basically make himself feel good is to ruin everything around him. Yeah, just the kind of charismatic jokester who tears everything down around him. Yeah, because that's all, the only way he can feel. So, uh, as as the movie opens, he's in particularly dire straits, and he goes to live at the apartment of an ex-girlfriend. He strikes up a relationship of some kind with her roommate, who's basically just uh, drug-addicted. Oh, and there's a a landlord who shows up every now and then who is truly evil. Yeah, he's basically um, Patrick Bateman from American Psycho. (laughs) The big centerpiece scene is when David Thewlis goes and meets this night watchman, and they take a walk around the place and have kind of a philosophical argument, during which... Uh, David Thewlis makes the case that his life is meaningless and his job is meaningless and the whole world is meaningless. It's a hard scene to watch because the night watchman is clearly just trying to make the best of a bad situation. Mm -hmm. You know, the other guy's just like torn down (laughs) everything for him. It it seems like this play, like you said before, that it's really fun to watch it happen on screen because David Thewlis is obviously very charismatic and this character has been thought out. But like the nature of the person that he's playing also results in like, yeah, okay, I get it. Mm. Like I understand. And because the story that they're telling is not one with any forward momentum or anything, it's just kind of a snapshot of this character, Mm. probably at the lowest point of his life. And if you went a little bit further, like he's probably going to die. Yeah. But it, it does make it a very tough sit, especially at its gargantuan length. But if I take anything away from the film, I guess it's, you know, the idea of what do you do when your life basically has no hope anymore, when you're stuck in a rut and you don't know how to get out of it. And in this movie, we see a couple of different coping strategies. With David Thewlis, it's to kind of laugh at the world and say, well, this is all shite anyway, mm-hmm. uh, and we're all going to die. With his pseudo-girlfriend it's basically to 
put herself into a drug-induced haze so she doesn't have to feel anything. And with this night watchman, it's to delude himself. To, yeah. To think, well, I'll, I'll survive and there's a god and whatever. Just distract yourself yeah. while these things are going on. Yeah. And then you also have um, David Thewlis's, uh ex-girlfriend in the film, who's the one that's kind of the more... Uh, I guess, stable person between all of them. And she also alludes to the fact that David Sulis was not always like this Mm -hmm. and that this has been a kind of steady progression because she does say that they dated for a year. And you're looking at his character in the film, it's almost impossible to imagine that happening. Yeah, yeah. But you can see... But he's a very intelligent guy. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Who feels like he's never been able to lock on to anything. And so he's just dug himself deeper as he's gone along. Yeah, you can imagine him being charming in a mm-hmm. In, a, in better... a different scenario, yeah. yeah. Where life is a little bit better. Yeah. So you also watch Secrets and Lies, mm-hmm. which is a movie about a working class um, a Londoner yeah. who gave up a baby when she was 16 years old. And now that baby is a grown woman and uh, she reconnects with her mother and this child ends up being black. And the child has been kept a secret from uh, the woman who's played by Brenda Blethen. Mm-hmm. It's been kept a secret from her the daughter she had later, who's now 20 years old. And there's a it has lot... a very strained relationship with her mother. Yeah, the household is very um, tumultuous at the time that the new daughter um, gives them a call. And meanwhile, the family also includes uh, Timothy Spall as her younger brother, who's a portrait photographer. The rat from Harry Potter. And uh, Mr. Turner himself. <laughs> yeah, in Mr. Turner, he gives a very uh, Danny DeVito as the penguin-like performance. <laughs> now, I found this movie very very moving when I watched it Mm -hmm. and uh, it tells a very concise story with all the kind of emotional beats that you would expect and the end I found particularly powerful in the way that all of the information was relayed and it was done in a way that was very melodramatic Mm -hmm. but very concise in the way that the actors did the performance. There's a scene where the mother and child meet for the first time and they end up in a pub And uh, Brenda Blesson is coming to the realization of you can't be my daughter because you're black. And then she realizes it and she just breaks down. That shot all in one long uh, take with no cuts. Oh, yeah. It's it's extraordinary. And it's just merciless for the actors, Mm -hmm. too. Yeah. I can't even imagine how many times you'd have to do something like that on set before they're like, okay, we're good. We're moving on. I found much of the film quite moving. I especially liked the subplot with Timothy Spall as a portrait photographer. And there's a very memorable scene where a woman comes in who uh, used to be a beauty advisor or a beauty specialist, but suffered a car crash and now has a big scar on her face. And she wants uh, Timothy Spall to do a portrait of her looking as bad as possible. And I guess, you know, maybe it's a bit of a a heavy-handed metaphor, but it's an effective one. The idea that these family photos and these portrait photos that he takes are presenting this false impression of people's lives. It's this absolutely polished and artificial yeah. kind of um they're fooling themselves yeah and we're we're trying to show you that this is how we normally are but that's not mm-hmm. the truth he has to make them smile mm-hmm. as you see over and over again like give me a smile come on please mm-hmm. I, I think brenda blethen is amazing in the film again it's a performance that takes me aback a little bit because it starts big 
Yes. You know, and she, it only gets bigger. Watching all these Mike Lee films in um, sequence, something that I noticed is that all the actors are giving very theatrical performances. Yeah. There's ticks and mannerisms that they kind of grab and hang on to, whether it be Timothy Spall and Mr. Turner, like the clearing of the throat, or the way that a Bre- Brenda Blethyn in this one puts my dear or dearest at the end of every single sentence. Yeah. As if these are crutches that they're going to in an improvisational kind of manner yeah. that you can use to kind of forward the scene. Although that, that touch her putting dear at the end of every sentence is quite effective because I think we've all heard people who have little phrases they resort to when they're nervous. Mm -hmm. Um, That scene at the diner between the two of them is a justifiably famous scene. Another great scene is when they're all at dinner towards the end of the movie at uh, a birthday party and Brenda Blethyn has brought her illegitimate daughter but hasn't told anyone who she is, just said she's a work friend. And you can see in this kind of long-held take of everybody milling around the table where like the dialogue is just ping-ponging back and forth that everybody is doing something different and there's multiple conversations happening but you can still feel the tension kind of mounting like it's going to there's going to be a release valve at some point and there is yes there's a big uh, a, a big confrontation at the end which again maybe speaks to why i find that british working class realism style difficult to connect to this probably comes back to me i'm the kind of guy who likes to bury his emotions and you're I, a real in the mood for love kind of guy i, I am i respond to art where everything is like kept at a low simmer and you know everything you know i think of some of my favorite movies like in the mood for Love's one or the king of comedy is another one where where there's no explosion everything is contained is boiled tight within everybody. Oh man, I love explosion in film. Yeah. I love when tears spring to my eyes when I watch a motion picture. That's amazing. That's the greatest kind of feeling because you're interacting with it in a way that genuinely moves you in a way that's not only intellectual. I mean, I'm moved by the more repressed style, though. Mm. I mean, I think because it's more true to how I live my life. <laughs> if we can get a little personal here a bit. Yeah. Uh, when people start yelling at each other, this is probably why I don't respond to Xavier Dolan as well. It seems foreign to my own experience. So that doesn't really happen in your kind of milieu. Oh, I milieu. Use that word again. <laughs> milieu. Uh, I mean, listen, I'm not going to say I've never got into any screaming fights. Yeah. But I don't know. It's not really my style. I can say that in my personal life, I have gotten in those screaming fights with my parents or other people like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the fact that I'm French Canadian, so it's right <laughs> up there on the level. But like me and my mother, we're like two completely different people. And you've said before that you and your mother are very close to kind of sensibilities, right? I I don't know. Um I actually think my mother and I are quite different. Hmm. Um, not not in a bad way. No, yeah. yeah. Or my father is more of a kind of repressed individual. Yeah. That he keeps everything simmering under the surface until suddenly something will make it explode and yeah. be like, well, like, what are you doing? Yeah. And it doesn't need to be something important. So maybe that's why I react to this kind of situation as well. And I'm saying that tears did spring to my eyes when I was watching yeah. this climax, which has Timothy Spall yelling, secrets and lies at <laughs> well, one point. I love when they say the title of the film. <laughs> that's when, uh, as Penn and Teller used to say, that you stand up and applaud in the <laughs> cinema. <laughs> yeah. And it all came back to Bowling for Columbine. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's my favorite example of that. But Mike Lee, I feel, is his strongest for me when he does reach those kind of emotional climaxes. That is working class films do a lot. I watched another film that he made, Career Girls, which is one of those rarities that it's an hour and 23 minutes. Oh, nice. And it does come to that kind of climax, which is about two women who went to university together and haven't seen each other in six years um, reunite to see how different their lives has changed. And coincidentally, they run into a bunch of people that they do didn't know back then. Mm-hmm. And it has the kind of same sadness and emotional kind of climaxes of looking at these things and seeing how they affect your life now. But then when he does stuff like Mr. Turner, that's completely different. Yeah, it feels like a I'm sure the Mike Lee fans would dispute me on this, but it feels like a different filmmaker to me. Mm-hmm. Which is very well composed. Like, Mr. Turner is beautiful looking. Oh, yeah. But it's also dramatically kind of simmering, but in mm. a way that, like, they're not reaching any climaxes. No, it's a biopic. Yes. And it's trying to take the biopic, like, I'm just going to show the person's story and not try to construct an artificial narrative on it. And you kind of, by the end of it, you have a, a strong idea of who Turner was. Mm-hmm. You know, but this shambling mess of a man who could create great art. You mentioned that some older people behind you at the screening said something funny when oh, the movie yeah. ended. When it ended, uh, the couple behind me said, is that it? <laughs> Old people are the worst behaved people at, at movie theaters. You think so? Yeah, like I, worse, worse than teens. They talk. I, have you ever been around an old pe- old people who like one of them is narrating the movie to her deaf yeah, husband? But like, I imagine that they have medical ailments that keeps them from being able to enjoy the movie. Yeah, stay home. That's what I say. <laughs> wow. You're like, why do we need these wheelchair ramps? Just tear them I, out. I, I did not say that. <laughs> I did not say that. <laughs> no, but I'm saying that to old people. Yeah, I think I'm allowed to be bigoted towards old people. One day someone will play this recording to you as you're trying to shuffle toward a seat. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that Mike Lee is still not a director that I would be a go towards like him having a new release instinctively. Like I wouldn't be rubbing my hands together and be like, can't wait to see what he does with this. I wouldn't be rubbing my hands, but if he had a new one out tomorrow, I might. Yeah, you'd go, yeah, see, go it. see it. Yeah. Probably because it would be critically kind of praised yeah, yeah. he's a good filmmaker mm-hmm. he undoubtedly he make, a good he filmmaker. makes serious films i like him so did we get any letters this week <laughs> yes we did so last week we asked a question of uh, at the in the end part of the podcast after the music which was that will did not believe that people go and watch uh movies that we talk about Oh, okay. Am I going to be pleasantly surprised? Um, I don't know if pleasant is the word that you're looking for, okay. but from listener Mirren, he writes, Hey, Justin and Will, heard your question about if people actually watch the film you guys recommend talk about. Went back through the feed to remind myself and pulled out the following films that I watched because of your show. If you could take a guess, what movies do you think it would be? Oh, probably all of Radley Metzger's films. <laughs> and the films are Anatomy of Hell. Oh, God. Rules don't apply. Oh, come on. She's funny that way. (laughs) (laughs) The stuff. Oh, well, that's a good one. And finally, a film that Will did not know about this letter. He watched on his own accord again. Anything else. Oh, my God. (laughs) I watched. I saw anything else again this week with my friend Luke, co-host of the Michael and Us podcast. Wow, it's bad. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't enough. That you watched it less than a year ago when we did our Woody Allen episode? I think it's been over a year, but whatever. (laughs) The letter writer continues, probably going to watch some 80s Robert Altman films and Freddy Got Fingered as well. Keep talking about weird auteur misfires and esoteric (laughs) movies in general, and I'm more likely to seek them out. Well, thank you. Um, Who wrote that? Uh, Mirren. 
Well, thanks for, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm taken aback. I mean, of, of all the movies, rules don't apply. She's funny that way. But but I actually, I like this letter writer because they're going for the deeper cuts. Yeah, I they want the weird stuff yeah. that they know is probably not going to be very good. Yeah. But that's the enjoyment that you get out you of it. You watch a movie like She's Funny That Way, and it's definitely like, Every inch of it is a Peter Bogdanovich film. Because um, it, it's y- the four fans only proposition. The idea of watching classic films, we've talked about this before, which is like, I'm going to watch Grapes of Wrath or The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. It's tough to be like, yeah, I can't wait to see this. Because yeah. you're like, they are, you know, they're classics and you know that they're probably going to be good. So you want to see the flawed stuff because yeah. that's more interesting. Yeah. Okay. So this week on our Patreon only episode, that's the thing that if you go and give us $5 a month, you will get four episodes of the Important Cinema Club. And speaking of deep cuts, the Patreons are like the deep cuts. This is where we're going to get a little experimental. I <laughs> yeah. think. This is where we're going to let our freak flag fly. <laughs> and um, we did Austin Powers last week <laughs> and Zodiac before that. And this week we did Island of Lost Souls. Hell yeah. The adaptation of the H.G. Wells story that is a famous pre-code horror picture don't forget if you're a fan of this podcast and you're like i can't get enough of them that uh donate and we will continue to make them and the more people we get the longer they are right now they're about 15 minutes every week and so it's like two extra episodes a month of the important cinema club and as we said before if we get ten thousand dollars man they're gonna be like an hour long yeah (laughs) then we quit our jobs (laughs) exactly next week we're not gonna be doing a filmmaker what? We're going to be doing a class syllabus from the Important Cinema Club. <laughs> so as a movie fan, I used to go uh, at the University of York Library, and I would just wander the aisles of the film section, just looking at spines for anything that would pop out at me, because I love reading about films. Mm-hmm. I never really found like that like great list of film books. And so what we're going to try to do is that, as me and Will, film fans, we're going to put together a list of film books that will be a syllabus of stuff that we believe you should read. It'll be uh, Don't Stand Too Close to a Naked Man by Tim (laughs) Allen. Uh, Does Howie uh, Mandel have an autobiography? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now, it's going to be stuff like the American cinema and so on and so forth. The Joker is Wild, The Life of Jim Carrey by Martin (laughs) Melman. Did you actually read that book? Oh, yeah, when I was a kid, sure. (laughs) Did you get a lot of um, insight out of it? I can't remember a single thing about it. (laughs) So this list of books is going to be fairly long. It's going to be posted on um, the website, but me and Will are just going to go through a bunch of books and kind of explain, like, why these are important and why you should read them. Mm -hmm. And they're going to include deep cuts. When I looked at some of the books that Will wrote on it, I was like, I have never heard of these ever. Mm -hmm. So I hope you're excited about an academic essay about pornography. (laughs) So if you have any questions, Questions or comments about the Important Cinema Club, feel free to write us. Our email is importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Oh, to the writer, what did you think of, uh, what did you think of the movies that you watched that we recommended? That's what I'm curious about. <laughs> and if you do like the podcast, go on iTunes, write us a review, and give us a rating. We haven't gotten a new one in a long time. Yeah, what the hell? <laughs> My name's Will Sloan. My name's Justin LeClue. Thanks for listening. So the past weekend, me and you, Will, we had a um, very rare opportunity, which was to go to the Canadian Screen Awards, a.k.a. Canada's Oscars. Yep. This is something you've been looking forward to for a long time, right? Well, it was something that we were told by our mutual friend that we may or may not get it. And 
I don't know if looking forward to is the right term because I wasn't I wasn't really expecting him to follow through on that promise. So for anybody who doesn't know what it is, it's an award ceremony that is. I mean, people don't care about Canada's film industry. Yeah. So of course they're not going to care about our Oscars. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with to people within that community though, it's a very big deal. Oh, you think so? Well, actually, I say that now, but Xavier Dolan, the night's big winner, didn't show up. Yeah, because he was busy with something else. But hey, do you know who did show up? Uh, Mr. Richard Mercer from the CBC. Oh, yes. That's a Rick Mercer. (laughs) Oh, okay. I'm sorry. You use the name his friends use. (laughs) I think the thing that I realized the most while watching it was that uh, I actually went through the things that were nominated this year, and they did the Oscars like, it's 10 films this year. And there was some really interesting stuff. Well, what I thought was weird about it was, you know, most of the movies that were nominated were movies that kind of got like a short one week run of the Carlton in 20 in 2016 to qualify but they're only just opening now which is a problem because why would anybody watching it on the CBC have any interest in these movies that they've never heard about yeah and it i don't think it achieves the thing where you know these kind of awards that used to be called the genies back in the day were done specifically to create buzz and interest in Canadian films right and i don't feel like that's really doing it anymore. Well, I mean, do the Oscars really generate uh, much excitement in movies? But I don't, I don't think that the Canadian Screen Awards serve the same you know, purpose that the Oscars do. Because the Oscars are not trying to, hey, check out these films. That's what the CSAs are doing. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. There's only so much you can do. I mean, mm-hmm. how excited are people going to get about a movie like Bruce McDonald's Weirdos, even but, in the best of times? But there was a movie called Hello Destroyer that I, was, I went, oh, I should check that out. And by the time that I went to the theater, <laughs> like a few days later, it wasn't even there anymore. Yeah, that exact same experience happened to me, actually. <laughs> well, uh, another distinction between uh the csas and the oscars is they combined the genies and the gemini's so Mm -hmm. it also awards tv that's where i think most of the star wattage was because unlike uh, movies tv you're forced to watch it because that's what's on yeah and a lot of people that dare i say are older than us will just tune in to cbc and watch whatever's playing yeah so the guy from kim's convenience won uh catherine o'hara won for schitt's creek this will be meaningless to our american (laughs) listeners Wow, they know Catherine O'Hara, um, SCTV, she was in Beetlejuice, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, who made a speech that had an end gag that Will was like, is that a reference to SCTV? Well, she, she put on this character voice and I don't know, I don't know what she was doing, but the big, the biggest star of the night was probably Mr. David Chappelle, uh, who showed up to introduce an award for Just for Laughs. Or Christopher Plummer. Who oh did a yeah, lifetime achievement award. Yeah, presented by friend of the podcast Adam Agoyan. Um, Christopher Plummer. <laughs> friend of the podcast. Christopher Plummer's was probably the best speech of the night, but I would be remiss without pointing out that the event was hosted by Howie Mandel mm-hmm. uh, from Bobby's World, who uh, floundered is a word I, through the proceedings. Perhaps, like one of the least funny people I think I've ever <laughs> seen in my life. Well, it opened with you know how Billy Crystal used to do that thing at the Oscars where he would superimpose himself into movies well Howie Mandel did his own budget version of that and he told us that repeatedly as a joke that like this is a budget version and the whole bit just kind of like faded to black at the end it didn't even have a punchline or anything for some reason he was dressed as a viking in all of the clips (laughs) um 
Yeah, and he tried to do some like viral bits kind of in the Jimmy Kimmel Ellen DeGeneres mode where like the, you remember that one inexplicable bit where he made uh, somebody in the band trade seats for somebody in the audience. And I was like, when's the punchline going to arrive? Never mentioned again. But the best part of the whole night was he created this bit where because it's Canada's 150th birthday this year, he bought he ostensibly bought a, a birthday card at Chopper's Drug Mart and had it passed around the audience and had everybody sign it. And this was, of course, supposed to climax at the end when the card would come back on stage and he'd show all the signatures. Well, unfortunately, uh, he lost track of the card and he couldn't get it on stage in time. So they just kind of rolled the credits over the end of the bit not having happened. With, with Howie Mandel on stage going like, oh, stalling for time, stalling for time. But yeah, it never finished. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was such a great bit to begin with that it's a shame it, it couldn't have had its proper orgasmic finale. And I should be remiss to say that something that people don't know about the Canadian Screen Awards is that they give a lot of them away before the actual televised broadcast Oh, that's starts. a great idea. <laughs> and it's kind of sad the way that people kind of come up on stage and are like, I, this is not televised, so uh, thanks to everybody that worked on the movie that's here. Or Canadian Screen Awards try to do something where they nominate famous people, hoping that those famous people will come well, to accept an award. Well, do that, yeah. But the people don't come. Yeah. So it's like the producer of It's Only the End of the World, the new Xavier Delaw film, got up on stage six times. Well, it was bad last year when the big winner was Room, which is technically a Canadian film. And so, of course, Brie Larson having just won an Oscar the week before, like... Why the hell would she come to Toronto f- for that? And there was awards given away for the movies that make the most money or get the most oh, ratings. Well, this was the best. This was the best part because the biggest money making Canadian film of the year was a Quebecois production called "The Three Little Pigs 2. which is about three adulterers on adventures. I mean, of course, it didn't get released outside of Quebec. The so. first one has never been released either with English subtitles. So when the uh, pre sh- the pre-awards host read the name and the winner is The Three Little Pigs 2, people chuckled because they thought, oh, is that a joke? But no, it wasn't a joke. And the uh, producer of the movie went on stage and he accepted it and he gave this really great fuck you speech that was like, <laughs> eh, I guess I should not be surprised that uh, the... Uh, most successful Canadian film does not uh, get any nominations, but they... Yeah, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> and then he walked off stage. Even though if you notice in the guide we got, there was a full page thank you to the three little pigs too. Oh, yeah. At the back. Yeah. So what lessons did you learn going to this event? Oh, I learned no lessons, but I had a I had a good time. You know, it was fun to uh, it was fun to have an open bar and to wear a suit and uh, <laughs> yeah, we got see, all dressed up. See some stuff of my like pals that. and you know take some pictures. <laughs> we did beside a Howie Mandel um, cardboard cutout that had no pants. I met I met a friend of mine whose father is one of Howie Mandel's writers. So and did you ask him like, hey, what was going on? I asked him. So is it true he's a germaphobe? Because I was pretty drunk by that point, so I didn't <laughs> I didn't know what else to say. And, and he said, well he doesn't shake hands but he does hug me so i guess he trusts me so there, you, there's a little howie gossip for you guys did you go to the after after party no i was too tired oh really because i left and i you were like i'm gonna play this night until it ends i had like seven drinks i was <laughs> and it, it was a work night I thought so. you were like pacing yourself well i was at the beginning <laughs> yeah and then, you know. at the end they had those fruity drinks with the straws and you're like i can't help myself i know all you people listening are probably really jealous of me <laughs> Like I mentioned before, there were still a lot of good uh, Canadian films that were nominated. Most of them that I haven't seen because I didn't catch them in that one week window. Mm. But uh, there was a movie called Operation Avalanche directed by Matt Johnson that was nominated for tons of awards, which was 
kind of a weird film is that there was a lot of buzz about it, like right before it came out, and then it was quietly released and then dumped the DVD out. Well, there was a lot of buzz like eight months before mm-hmm. it came out when it had. It sold for like a million dollars or something like that, the screenplay and the rights to the yeah. film, The Lions Gates. And then. And um, then everybody who wanted to see it saw it at a free screening. I so. did not. I had to pay like a I, sucker. I did too. I saw it at its run at the Lightbox. Uh, I was actually kind of hoping that that film would actually get some wins of some kind because it was nominated for a bunch well i like that movie not only do i like the movie i don't quite like it as much as the dirties but i i like it yeah quite the dirties bit. being matt johnson's first yeah. film which uh, is very good but but I, but I think it's quite a good film and quite a quite a creative and innovative movie but also it would have been kind of a win for a certain younger generation of filmmakers um i mean xavier dolan did win but um i don't like him yeah. as a filmmaker. As we've talked about this before, and Xavier Dola has already like he's in his early twenties, mid twenties? Probably mid twenties by now, but he was one he was like this boy wonder whose whose first movie he was like seventeen or something when he made it. Sixteen, I think. Yeah. It was called Um I Killed My Mother. I've only seen two of his films. I've seen Heartbeats and I've seen Mommy and I didn't care for them and I, I feel like it's just like a lot of people yelling a lot and there's no subtext and that's pretty much what his newest film is about which is an adaptation of a play with a bunch of actors from france like all the big names that have won tons of awards playing quebecers in like a shitty house yelling at each other do they do quebec accents uh not really the fact that he won again like his films always win yeah it's just something that's been ossified right and when something like operation avalanche which is genuinely innovative mm. And the way that it presents its material is just kind of brushed aside, winning no awards. Yeah. <laughs> um, I heard that Matt Johnson's face, I didn't watch the broadcast, was like a picture of apathy as like when they announced who won. Yeah. <laughs> and then Xavier Delon, not even there to pick up his award. The same producer we saw six times. I wonder if that was a bit of a snub on Matt Johnson. I mean, I, one of the reasons the Dolan won is because it won a prize at Cannes and because mm-hmm. he's kind of the internationally famous Canadian filmmaker of the moment. But the interesting about that film is that it is pretty much critically um, derided. Like yeah. people don't like it. Yeah, and it somehow won it best was Canada's film. Oscar submission this mm-hmm. year too. But I don't know. Like Matt Johnson is somebody who I think maybe rubs people the wrong way a little bit because because of those interviews that he gave like a year ago, kind of trashing Telefilm and mm-hmm. uh, TIFF. And he did get some grant money, and didn't he like? Um, break it up to like female filmmakers or something like yeah, that. Yeah, which I guess is is noble. Yeah, uh, but I guess if you don't play the game, then you're not going to win any awards within that game. Perhaps he will have a Bogdanovich like uh, come down. <laughs> <laughs> Bogdanovich like come down. Yeah, yeah I don't yeah. even think he's gotten like the <laughs> the success. Right, Bogdanovich won an Oscar with the Last Picture yeah, Show, his second know. film. What is success in Canada? I don't even know. <laughs> Well, it's obviously getting nominated for the Canadian Screen Awards. Yeah. I mean, we didn't spot any celebrities, though. By the way, our, Justin and I would like to host next year. <laughs> I just want to put that on. I just want to put that on the radar. Listen. Wait, what if they offered the pre-show hosting duties? I'll take it. Yeah. So the I, would, I would be a little disappointed, to be honest. <laughs> but may I take it. But I think, you know, there was Norm Macdonald two years ago. There was Howie Mandel. Who won an award for hosting within the context of the Canadian Screen Awards. And, the, and he, of course, wasn't there, but they read a speech. Uh, where he said, uh, hey, does this mean I can host next year? 
But but then Howie hosted this year, and frankly, I think we're as relevant as Howie Mandel is. <laughs> yeah, so, that's true. You know, we're we're the uh, hosts of one of Toronto's most beloved uh, movie podcasts, pr- probably in the top ten. Yeah, in the top ten, I would yeah, say. We're probably like you know, you got your faculty of horror, you got your semcast, maybe Yo Adrian, and then us. <laughs> yeah, right there at the bottom. Yeah. But you know, it's the underdogs you want to root for, yeah. right? <laughs> 